Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. The Global Story with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. It's your programme about money, work and the economy. I'm Sam Fennick. Coming up today, as Michiganers head to the polls to choose their candidates for the upcoming US election, we look at what drives the state's economy. Can Europe really take on China in the race to produce electric cars? The Chinese have some form of advantage in the control of the EV value chain, starting from mining, refining of the materials, gigafactory capacity, etc. Also today, we are suffering for Nigeria. It's not like this before, but we want change for good. Hunger day for Nigeria. Children now, they are hungry. How do families make ends meet when prices for food and fuel are soaring? That's all coming up here on BBC on the BBC World Service on World Business Report. We start the programme in the US state of Michigan, where people are voting to choose who they want to run in the country's general election later this year. On the Democratic side, Mr Biden is expected to win his party's nomination. But in the critical swing state, Democrats will be watching to see the results of a protest movement, calling for voters unhappy with his handling of the war in Gaza to vote uncommitted. On the right, Donald Trump is expected to cruise to victory. Michigan's economy has historically been dominated by the automotive industry. It employs around 170,000 people. And here's what some of them had to say about the election. For me, General Motors I worked for, 2019 we were out on strike. 2019, the former president, you didn't hear anything from him. We have plants that never reopening. I'm from Flint, Michigan. Like I said, if I had a president like Biden, Flint, Michigan wouldn't look the way it looks. So in the history of the United States, we have never, once we lose the plant, we never got it back. Well, the car industry has faced some tough challenges. The global downturn of 2008, a shift to electric cars, and most recently, a prolonged strike by auto workers. So how might this affect how people vote? I asked Patrick Anderson. He runs the Anderson Economic Group. It's a non-partisan economic consultancy businessing business covering the state of Michigan. The auto industry is still the cornerstone of the Michigan economy. It is really the cornerstone of the Midwestern American economy. We're talking about Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, uh, as well as Michigan and Ontario and Canada. So there's a lot of manufacturing. 
And manufacturing now is high-tech manufacturing, so a considerable part of the jobs and the value added are actually in industries like information technology, software, logistics, et cetera, that they, go into cars and the software and the hardware that are needed to run them today. Yet that industry has faced many challenges in recent years, hasn't it? We've seen the shift to electric cars. Most recently, we've seen the car workers strike. So how has that played out in the economy? There's definitely been a big change in the auto economy, and that's been going on for 25 years. And and a substantial part of the crisis came to a head when General Motors and Chrysler actually went bankrupt back in 2009. After that, the economy has changed and the industry has changed. There's no longer the expectation that the auto industry will just be a blanket employment guarantee for, for huge numbers of workers. And these companies are, are much closer to the edge in terms of whether they, they can build vehicles uh, and stock them up. They've been very profitable recently, which was one of the motivating factors behind the UAW strike last year, which was a bitter strike. It cost the auto workers and the automakers and the suppliers a lot of money. The repercussions are still being felt. How will that play out, do you think, in this primary, but also in the upcoming election? The strike is still out there. Uh, there's a lot of auto worker feeling that they should get paid more. Americans generally believe that. The automakers believe that as well. But the issues that are burning with the electorate now include electric vehicles, include regulatory burdens, regulatory excess from the point of view of, of um, most people in the industry, and generally the, the loss of jobs and the kind of talking down to that a lot of people in the manufacturing economy get from, let me say, the elite opinion and a lot of the government regulators that are headquartered in New York and Washington and California. Those issues are burning out there, and they're one of the reasons why even the president of the UAW acknowledged publicly that a lot of auto workers won't be voting for Joe Biden. Despite Joe Biden at the time of those strikes coming out very, very much for those auto workers. That's right. President Biden broke a century of precedent and actually joined a picket line. I don't think that was the right thing to do. I think that lost him a lot of leverage. I think he ended up playing almost no role in the settlement of the strike because he'd literally taken sides. But it also sent the signal that he wanted to, that he was he was committed to auto workers and uh, he's a labor union oriented president. Donald Trump has also tried very hard to get those auto workers on side, hasn't he? Donald Trump has been singularly successful as a Republican in connecting with blue collar workers and again, displaying that certain knack he has for often bluntly and one might say coarsely grabbing uh, hot button issues. He identified the Democratic Party's uh, push for electric vehicles as a threat to jobs. And he has a lot of resonance with auto workers because of that and because he, you know, unambiguously is in favor of building things in America, which is is something that, the, let me say, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party often seems to not be particularly interested in doing. However, you know, Joe Biden has introduced the Inflation Reduction Act. And renewable energy is a growing sector in Michigan as the economy tries to divert itself away from the car industry. The Inflation Reduction Act really had very little to do with renewable energy. It had a lot to do 
with pushing people to buy electric cars. It had a lot to do with subsidizing the building of chargers, the buying of electric buses, and that's still going on. This is a multi-hundred billion dollar subsidy bill that's this has huge taxpayer cost and big effects. It's done almost nothing for renewable energy. That's something that uh, state policy has been pushing for a while. And to some degree, it actually increases the vulnerability that, that a lot of states like Texas are feeling that have reduced the, the safety margin that they have with reliable, mostly fossil fuel sources, on top of renewable energy sources like wind and solar that fluctuate so much. In the 2020 election, Michigan was one of the closest and most contested states as it flipped from Republican to Democrat by a margin of only 0.63%. Do you think it will be pivotal in this upcoming election? Michigan is one of the most important states in a presidential election. The fact that it flipped to Donald Trump and then flipped back last time really underlines what a battleground it is. It's a populous state, has 10 million people. It's the headquarters of the auto industry. Lots of manufacturing jobs, lots of connection with other industry, and closely watched. So it's definitely something that is going to be fought over, and you already see that. There's a protest vote against uh, against Joe Biden that has mounted a very unusual one. So it's definitely something that even at these at the earlier stages, you know is going to be important. That was Patrick Anderson. Well, Nigeria is currently experiencing its worst economic crisis in a generation. Annual inflation is close to 30%, and that means food and fuel prices are soaring. On Tuesday, Nigeria's central bank increased interest rates by 400 basis points to 22.75%. So how are people coping? Well, our reporter, Barbara George, has been finding out. Though the higher prices are leading to frustration and widespread anger across the country, with many taking to the streets to protest, this started on Tuesday and were organised by the trade union group. They want to see more action from the government to curb rampant inflation on fuel and food. For example, a litre of petrol costs more than three times what it did nine months ago, while the price for staple food for dishes like jollof rice and stew has increased Rice and onions has more than doubled in price and tomatoes have increased by almost 80%. Listen to this. It gives you an idea of how difficult it is for businesses and families. There is suffering for the worker. Over 150 million Nigerians are living below poverty line. We are suffering. We are suffering for Nigeria. It's not like this before, but we want change for good. Hunger day for Nigeria. Children now, they are hungry. Adults are hungry. A person like me, I be a farmer. I know if you buy fuel, water farm, because of hiding of fuel. Country is hard, food, hide, everything is hard. And if you have a business, which many Nigerians do, as you said, Sam, the central bank has just increased borrowing rates to 22.75%. And that's going to make it very tough for many people, like Alezi Akupuru. She owns, as a creative director of Nigerian contemporary women's wear brand, Vergoli Fashion. This is what she had to say. I used to buy fabric maybe two, three years ago for 400 naira. Now I buy the same fabric for 1,200 naira. That's three times how much it usually costs. In the past, let's say, month, it's gone up from 800 naira to 1-2. So automatically, 
that is going to increase my cost. Let's not forget that there's also fuel. There's also inflation. So cost of production is going up. Cost of every little thing I have to do is also going up. So automatically, my costs have to go up. Barbara, how has Nigeria's economy fallen into this state? So when the president, Bola Tinubu, was sworn into office nine months ago, he announced that the long-standing fuel subsidy would be ending. This had kept petrol prices low, but it was also a huge drain on public finances. He had asked Nigerians to be patient like while he navigates these hard times with his economic policies. Here is the finance minister, Wale Adeun, speaking to the BBC earlier. We all know that over the last eight years, there was an increase in the money supply on the one hand, which was not matched by productivity, wasn't matched by production, and therefore it was inflationary. And the majority of the people did not benefit from this, but a few people did. And that's why in correcting that situation, there's a focus on making sure it is the people at the lower end in particular that are taken care of. Is there anything that could alleviate the situation in the short term, Barbara? So the president is unlikely to reverse his decision on the fuel subsidy and the Naira. So the government has introduced some measures to ease the suffering, such as establishing a board to control and regulate food prices. But there has been some criticism to that. Here is Adedeo Ademawuga. He is a consultant at Sunkai Advisory. First of all, investors and everyday people, the Nigerian people, want to see that the people who are responsible for getting the job done actually have a clear plan on what they want to do. At the moment, it appears that that is not the case. Some time ago, six, seven months ago, the president appointed a tax slash fiscal reform committee. That committee hasn't submitted its report to say this is what we're going to do. First of all, one, have the proper people in place. Two, you've got to communicate, express a clear, coherent, credible plan on how you intend to address the crisis. And, you know, the unions have actually called off for their protests scheduled for Wednesday. Organisers say they're giving authorities until the middle of next month to meet their demands. Barbara, thank you very much for explaining that to us. Well, listening to Barbara was was Ebenezer Obadare. He is a senior fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. Ebenezer, thanks for coming on the programme. What does this mean? Thank you for having me. Thank you. The, The state of the Nigerian economy, what does it mean for people like you, Nigerians living outside of the country? If you're a Nigerian living in the diaspora, it means you are sending more money home. It means that more people are asking you for assistance. Um, And you're not just talking about people in your immediate family. You're talking about extended family. You're talking about friends you haven't met in the last 20, 25 years or reaching out. And what that tells you is that everyday life has become more difficult for the average Nigerian. So when you say you're sending more money home, can you give us an idea of how much more you're you're sending? Okay, so don't let me talk about myself. Let me talk about the whole of Nigeria. In 2022 alone... Nigerians spent, sent a combined $20, $20 billion to Nigeria from different places outside the country. If you want to know what that means, Nigeria's total budget for 2024 is $34 billion. So that tells you the magnitude of the kind of assistance that Nigerians abroad, are, um, the magnitude of the, the help they are rendering to their fellow Nigerians living in Nigeria in order to get through this crisis. And when you send money home, presumably the people who you're sending it to have, it's going quicker. You know, as Barbara's been saying, prices are going up virtually every day. 
So, yes, prices are going up every day. Um, so think about a basic food like rice. The price has increased more than 98.5% over the last 12 months. If you think of a kilogram of tomatoes, the price has risen by 81% within the same period. If you are thinking about onions, 97.4%. The price of gas has tripled. So everywhere you face, people are telling you that life has become more unbearable and they need more money. So not only are you sending more money home, you are sending more money home more frequently. What about foreign investment? Could that be something that might help Nigeria's economy? Well, I wish I could say yes, but unfortunately, the answer is no. So here is the, here is the figure for you. Last year alone, 2023, I'm going to name these companies. All of them either sold their assets to local players or shut down manufacturing in the country. Unilever, Glaxo Smith, Smith Klein, Sanovia Aventis, both food, Jumia Food, Equino, Procter & Gamble. According to the Manufacturer Association of Nigeria, more than 60,000 jobs were lost because of the exodus of all these companies. In the eight years between 2014 and 2022, overall foreign investment in Nigeria's manufacturing dropped by almost 368 billion naira. So that's not where the help is coming from. The macroeconomic picture is not good, and multinational farms are recognizing that and voting with their feet. Just if briefly, if you could, what might be the thing or the one thing that you think could be put in place to kind of give some immediate relief to people? I think it's very obvious, security. One of the problems right now is people do not feel safe going out. They cannot go to farm. Those who are farm products cannot take them to the market. People fear for their lives. There is widespread insecurity in the country. If the government were to do something to rectify the, the security situation, other things are bound to follow. Okay, thank you. Ebenezer Obadare, thank you for joining us here on the programme. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. I don't think we realised what the true flavour of Wyoming was back in 1969. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. There was a rebel Confederate flag being flown. It was different. It was definitely different. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to World Business Report from the BBC World Service with me, Sam Fennick. To the Geneva Motor Show now. It's taking place in the Swiss town for the first time since the COVID outbreak. And one of the highlights so far has been the unveiling of the new electric Renault 5. It's a modern technology packed in a retro shell, evoking the halcyon days of the 70s and 80s when countless French families used to take to the road in the original boxy but cheap mass-produced car. The days of small cars seems to be increasingly rare, don't they, as manufacturers look to pack cars with very large batteries and bigger and bigger profits. So why is Renault taking a different road? A question our reporter Theo Leggett put to Renault's chief executive, Luca De Meo. Well, look, it's part of the history of our brand. We have always been a kind of a popular brand, uh, trying to make things that people could afford and I believe it makes sense. It gives uh, people a chance to get into this new technology because they can afford it. And, yeah, that's always been the role of our uh, company. And we stay true to it. 
Can you make money out of this, though? Because other manufacturers say they're moving away from small mass-produced cars because they simply aren't profitable enough. I think there is an opportunity with electric technology to reduce the size of a battery, especially for small cars. And then as the battery is 40% of the cost of the thing, if you cut it by half in terms of energy, then I think you can do it. And we have been fighting very, very hard to prove that we could produce uh, small cars in Europe profitably. The challenge is still there. It's very complicated, but I think someone has to take the challenge and we did. In terms of electric cars, Renault was one of Europe's leaders. You were among the first out there. But now the market's being led by Tesla in the United States, by incomers from China like BYD. Do you think Europe is being left behind? Yes, I think so. And we were probably also one of those who were left behind, uh, despite the fact that, as you said, we started very early. So the management of Renault in the past had some hesitation about electric technology. For sure, Tesla, we all know, but also the Chinese have some form of advantage in the control of the EV value chain, starting from mining, refining of the materials, gigafactory capacity, etc., I think there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do the same, but we probably need a little bit more uh, time to catch up. You've said in the past that China's 10 years ahead in battery technology. How do you catch up a gap like that? Some way of doing this is also to cooperate with them because I think they've done an incredible job. Uh, This is actually the case what's happening. Many, uh, for example, Chinese uh, battery companies are, you know, building gigafactories also in Europe. So I think there is a form of cooperation we have to find. And again, it's a kind of a competition thing. You compete on one side, you cooperate on the other in order to accelerate the thing. Because if you keep, you know, your eyes on the target, which is to decarbonize transport, which I think it's an objective we all share, then we'll have to find a way and be, be pragmatic. That was Renault's boss, Luca Di Meo, talking to Theo Leggett. Well, I wonder what investors might think about that. Let's ask Diana Gutter. She is investment financial advisor at Brighton Securities in New York. Do you think that they will be uh, kind of comforted by what the Renault boss is talking about there, trying to take on the likes of BYD in China? Well, it's kind of exciting and new opportunities. Of course, BYD's passenger cars aren't available yet in the States, but their buses are and they're made in California. So we're always open for new ideas and opportunities. Now, another story which has caught our eye today is the Klarna IPO story. The Swedish fintech is pursuing plans for a potential U.S. listing that could be one of the largest listings this year. We hear that a lot, don't we? They're always going to be the largest listings. But what do you make of that story? How big a listing could it be, do you think? Well, that's really exciting. And we're talking about Klarna. Yep, we're talking about Klarna. And so we think Klarna is buy now, pay later and later and later because (laughs) they have the popular pay in four choices. But today they announced the AI assistant powered by the magical open AI. They've used it for about a month. And I will tell you, the results are pretty astounding. I mean, their customers get their errands done in two minutes instead of 11. And 35 languages are open up. And robots don't sleep, right? AI doesn't sleep. So they get 24-7 customer service. Wow, It's really at the forefront with partners in this 
adaptation for AI. It's very practical. It doesn't teach anything about budgeting skills, but that's a story for another day. Okay, fair enough. Now, another uh, IPO story is Shein. This is this Chinese Singapore fast fashion retailer. Now, they are considering an IPO in London if it is blocked from listing in the US. They are. They are. They filed, of course, in the states in New York in November, but now they're considering shifting it to London. It's a practical shift for them. It would avoid the extra scrutiny it faces in the states over their operations in China. And it could be London Stock Exchange's second largest in history because the valuation is 80 to $90 billion. And London struggled a bit recently, hasn't it, attracting big yes. names? So this could be a, a big win for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then just one other story that we were quite keen to talk to you about. Viking Therapeutics shares have jumped today. What's that about? (laughs) Tell us about that. Quite a jump. So Viking Therapeutics announced today that they have an experimental drug helping patients with obesity, often diabetes, obesity, and their their patients lost 15% of their body weight. On an average study, only major side effects were dehydration. So how did this translate for their stock performance? Up over 130% today. So weight went down, the stock went up. Today was a win-win for Viking Therapeutics. Deanna, thank you very much for coming on and explaining that to us. Well, we're going to talk about an iconic US brand now, Macy's opened its first department store in 1858. It's been the go-to for fashion and beauty for years, but like many bricks-and-mortar department stores, it's having to compete with online retailers selling products that are delivered to your doorstep at much cheaper prices. And e-commerce has finally caught up. Today, Tuesday, Macy's said that it will be closing a fifth of their stores by the end of 2026. Retail analyst Neil Saunders gives us his take on the news. We don't know all of the locations. I think some are starting to filter out. And one of the interesting ones that's filtered out is one of the flagships in San Francisco, which is a very big store. And I think that gives an indication that Macy's is really serious about getting rid of stores that just don't work for them any longer. The CEO, Tony Spring, has said that underperforming stores will go. And that means that even some that are cash flow positive will also have to go. So the axe is cutting deep. The axe is cutting deep because Macy's really needs to get its house in order in terms of optimising the number of stores it has. And that's very important because one of the other things that they want to do is invest more in the stores that remain. So they don't want to put investment into stores that they don't really think have a future or that aren't going to deliver a return on that investment. So they're being very surgical and they're taking out stores that they just don't think have a future in their portfolio. And that is quite harsh. It is a deep cut. There's a lot of stores that are going to be closed as a result of this. But arguably, it's something that Macy's probably should have done before. It just hasn't pruned as it's gone along. So now we've got this massive wave of closures coming as Macy's tries to right-size. Online shopping compared to other markets is fairly or has been in the past fairly immature in the US. Is it finally starting to catch up? Are the US consumers starting to really embrace it like European consumers are? 
Yes, I think it's fair to say that the pandemic pushed a lot more people to shop online and online has become a much more significant part of the market. It's not quite at the level in the US as it is in the UK, for example. The UK is a very advanced market. It's not at the level of China, which is another very advanced online market. But it's certainly catching up and it's becoming a more significant part of retail. That said, it's still important to remember that even in most categories and overall, store sales are still the vast majority of retail sales in the US. So it's not the cause of all of Macy's problems. Neil Saunders. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shopping-Gutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. Oh.